Welcome to On the Road with Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from the Idle Chatter family of podcasts. I invite you to jump in and join me. Along the way, we will get to know some really interesting people and their stories. Be it farming or firing orders, these folks are passionate about growing things or making horsepower. So let's get this bad boy fired up and head off to destinations unknown. Hello, my friends, and welcome to On the Road. I'm your humble host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road. And this this is going to be such a special, special episode of On the Road. Because the, the person that you're going to be meeting in a couple, maybe a minute or so, it depends how winded I am, all right, is the dearest friend I have in the world. And I'm so excited about bringing him and bringing our friendship to the audience. And I want to thank you so much for listening. But even though the show is going to be about him, our lives are so intertwined that I can't talk about him without talking about me. And he can't talk about me without talking about himself. So it's really going to be something that I've been looking forward to. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's the brother that the, that the Lord gave me through another mother, right? A brother through another mother. But we've, we've known each other for 43 years, and we have discussed that. And I know him longer than I know my wife. And we've been through so many things together on both sides of the aisle. And he, he knows my heartaches, my tears, my joys, my sorrows. And I know the same thing about his life. And I was actually blessed to be the best man at his wedding. So it's with, without any further ado, I am going to introduce you to the, the man who is my brother, my best friend in all the world, Gene Worst, who currently lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, but we'll discuss that. Welcome, Gene, to On the Road, my buddy. Thank you, Butch. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank God, and this is going to be, I'm so excited about having you on because, first of all, number one, you're my brother, so like if I mess up the show, I mess up the show. Who knows? We just re-recorded, right? Uh, what are you going to do? Exactly. You know, that's what brothers do. We screw up every now and then, right? I'm more, not now and then, I'm more like every once in a while I don't mess up, but I'm so I'm so happy to have you on, on board today, and it's a show that we've been Putting off, I've wanted to do right from the inception of On the Road, but at that particular point, I did not have the ability to do a telephone link. And one of the things that I wanted to always do with this show was try to do belly to belly, uh, not interviews, because they're not interviews, they're discussions with people. Exactly. But but since I know you so long, I know you almost as long as I've been alive. So the thing is that I don't need to I don't need to see you. All right. I don't need to go belly. Exactly. I don't need to go belly to belly with you. All right. So that is but what I want to do is tell the audience a little bit about how we met because I think that's going to be a very important element of this show. And as I said, yes. they're going to learn a little bit about me that they didn't know. I'm the hot rod farmer, <laughs> right? But the fact that right. but the fact of the matter is for a very short time in my life. I lived in Queens, New York City, all right, just due to family circumstances. My family had bought the farm in 1954, which is before I was born, so don't think I'm that old, all right, before I was born. And then due to family circumstances, we had to go into the city, and we had a house in Queens, New York. And then I, um, to tell you the truth, I mean, Gene knows this, I hated it. I mean, I, I, I hated living in Queens, but, you know, like, like, like so many things in life, when you look back in life, 
that even though I hated living in Queens, I would have never met the man who became my best friend if I didn't live in Queens. Yes. So yes, uh, and, and yes, it's 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 quite it was quite a time back then, you know, back in the in the seventies like that. It was it was something, you know, and uh, you know, like I said, it was fate. It was it was absolute fate how we met. Right, it, it, you know, no, that it, I do believe. No, it was, and I'm going to tell everybody how we met. Do we? I I I went to John Bowne High School, and it was about a mile, mile and a half away from where. I, where the house was where I lived, and I used to ride a bicycle there, and I used to walk. I used to love walking home. But anyway, I went to John Bowne High School. And then in John Bowne High School, I met in a shop class. The person was one year younger than me, a friend that I'm still friendly with, and Gene is still friendly with, Glenn Nadell. And what happened was that I graduated, and he was one year behind me. We were in metalworking. We had, I think, my, my senior year of high school, I'd finished all of, I should say, most almost all of my academic classes. And at that particular time in New York City, there was budget cuts. So the high school we went to, John Bound High School, had five thousand students. And I know there's a lot of people who are listening to this show that don't have five thousand people in their county. So we had three different shifts. And then when you were when you were a sophomore, then you went in you went in later. And then as you got became a junior, you went in earlier. And then the seniors went in the earliest. And I loved it because I was a morning person. We used to start at seven o'clock in the morning, and by eleven fifteen, I was done. So anyway, so my senior my last semester of senior year, I had like three shop classes and I think English or something. I was I don't even remember what it was because I finished my math, I finished my science and whatever. And I met in that class Glenn Nadell. And then Glenn Nadell, we parted company, and then I was riding my motorcycle. I had a Honda CB350 street bike. I was riding my motorcycle, and I went by to high school. I only had graduated maybe a month or so before, a month or two before. No, I remember the day we met. It was the day Elvis Presley died. Do you remember that? It was August. It was in the summertime. The day Elvis Presley died, August 16th, I think. Wow. I know you're good with dates. You're much better than than I am. Yeah, so, so if you say so, I believe it because I know it was a summer evening and I was taking a walk. Right. I was down by Glenn's house because that's what I do. Is I love to walk and I still do. I do about four and a half miles a day, and uh, you can go on and. But yeah, but uh, it was probably around that time. No, I just remembered. So I went for a ride with my motorcycle. I went by the high school. I don't know why the heck I went by the high school for, right? And the thing, I went by the high school, and I went down a side street, a residential neighborhood there, and lo and behold, Glenn Nadell comes out of his house. I said, wow, Glenn. And then I parked the, the, shut off the motorcycle, and I took the helmet off, was talking to Glenn, and you were walking up the street. I believe you were walking towards Main Street. Is that correct? Do you remember that or not? That is correct. Yeah, because my my house was further inward towards that neighborhood right. by Bound, and I was walking toward my, my regiment at that time was to walk down Glen's block, and then I would walk around the schools. There was Queens College, Bound High School, Campbell Junior High, and PS219. There was four schools on one block, and it was a mile and a half around or two miles around, so I would walk around that whole block and then walk back home. Yeah, and, and and so you were walking up the block, and I don't know, I mean, I didn't know you from a hole in a wall. I never had met you and seen you before. I was just surprised to see Glenn because I didn't know where he lived. I knew he lived by the school someplace, but I didn't know where he lived. I, I to tell you the truth, 
I honestly thought I would never see him again, even though, of course, I don't know, things were different back then. I mean, I mean it wasn't, I couldn't wait to get out of Queens to get back to the farm and what have you. We had, right. the, we had the house rented up here. It was just, it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was a good, it was, it was a good but bad time, if that makes any sense. I think anybody who's had some mileage under their belt would understand that statement. So anyway, so you came and you're, and, and you're the polar opposite of I am. You're, you're skinny and th- th- tall and thin and I'm fat and shorter i'm not that short all right and then and then we started to talk and then it was great because at that particular point that motorcycle ride re reintroduced me to glenn and introduced me to you and then exactly and then i don't even know what happened afterwards but 43 years that was 1977 the year elvis i remember it was the year elvis presley died because i went i went for a ride not that i was a big elvis presley fan but went for a ride on my motorcycle met you saw you and i believe that that was august 16th and that was 1977 it was a long long time ago and then we just it was we just took it from there and, uh, exactly. And, and I remember that night because and remember there was a dark, a B5 blue, because I'm very much into cars at that point. You know, my whole life I've been very much into cars. And then I remember we were chatting and this B5 blue 69 dark swinger 340, not a GTS, but a dark swinger also came by. It had no, no hubcaps, just black rims and red line tires on it. And I remember the guy just chatting with us for a minute because we all remember stopped and looked at the car because the car was beautiful. It was fairly, you know, not that old of a car back then. No, it wasn't. And, and you know, and then it was all original, you know, and then it kind of roared off. I think he was going down to see either like Aroni, Joey Aroni, or the Shore Brothers, or Bowersox, or one of those guys the older guys, you know, down, down the ways, you know, and, um, and, uh, and that was that. And then we just, you know, had our friend and just started, you know, chatting and, and everything. I didn't have a car back then. You had, I believe the Dart, I believe. At that no, time. I believe it or not. I had a Volkswagen. I, we had the Dart in the family, but I had a 69 Volkswagen bug with a semi-automatic. Talk about. That's right. That's right. I remember. And you put a tack. I remember the tachometer you put it, in the dashboard. It was in, it was in the dashboard, but we won't tell. I'm a Christian guy. So, but this is full disclosure. Like I said, you can't learn about Gene without learning about me, or me, me without learning about Gene. Is <laughs> if my cousin John stole it out of a Fiat? <laughs> oh now, my God, that thing looked so perfect in the dashboard. You would think it came down the assembly line in Germany it, that way. It, it was it a was Fiat perfect. attack, and 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 you know, my audience knows I I never stole anything in my life. My cousin John, who was much old, everybody thought he was my uncle. He was older than I am, and he stole that tack out of a Fiat, and I. I <laughs> And then he, and he, he said, oh, this will be good in the, because he had a common gear, but he was going to mm-hmm. put it in his car. He didn't steal it from me. All right. He was going to put it in his common gear, but the common gear had a little bit different dashboard layout. So actually that bug I bought was his friend's bug. So he was well intimate with the car. But anyway, forget mm-hmm. about the stealing. We didn't, I didn't steal it. Okay. All right. So I don't, uh, <laughs> but I received stolen goods and then, and then. 
and, and so I'll, well, whatever. This story, this is about you, not about my cousin John. But but so I had that bug. But my family had the '68 Dart at the time, and I only drove mm-hmm. drove the bug for a couple of months. It was a. I learned a lot working on that bug. I have to say that. Yeah. I learned. I learned a lot working, and we kept and ended up giving it to my sister. But the Dart, the '68 Dodge Dart, was so much of a better car. It was. Oh yeah. I mean, it got better fuel economy with the slant six than the Volkswagen did. It had air conditioning. It had. It had. Uh, it was. It was just. It was just so much. But I had fun in the bug. But I had the bug. So I had the bug. But you're right. You didn't have a car. And I don't even know what happened afterwards. But you know, I don't remember that Dart coming by glenn's house that night i met you and you know as, as good of a memory as i have i don't remember everything and i don't remember that car don't remember yeah, I, I, I remember i remember you the bike because that bike was beautiful it was gold it had black and gold stripes on it and you had it, it for beautiful. a while you had it for a while yeah. out in long island i had it for a while too yeah 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 the, that, and it's a beautiful beautiful little cb350 drum yeah. brakes drum cable bra- drum yeah. brakes bias ply tires and, uh, yeah, and it was just a cool bike. Yeah, yeah. I remember the dart. I remember you. I remember, you know, a lot about that day, and it was just a really cool time, you know, and uh, because I was going into my senior year of high school, and, and I, was I was getting excited because my parents never had a car. So growing up, I'm a diehard car guy. We never had a car. Oh. And so here I am. I'm getting of age because... I, I couldn't drive, so I, I, I didn't even have a license. I, I think I had a permit at that point. If I was, I was 16, 17, around there. I was 16. Uh, I'm, I was born late August, so I wasn't yet 17. So I remember getting my permit around that time and then not really having a car to drive <laughs> to practice. So... Yeah, who did you practice just, with? Because you had to, you had to have somebody take you to the. But let me just back up because I'm just going to interrupt you, buddy. But the thing is that the sure. reason, the reason why Gene's parents didn't have a car, uh, Gene's father just died a couple of years ago. His, actually, his dad and my dad had the same birthday, December fourteenth. My dad was older, yeah. but we called them the December fourteenthers, and they they had they had a lot of parallels in their personality. <laughs> The frugalness, we'll leave it at that. All right. And the thing is that, but Gene's dad had epilepsy. So he wasn't yeah. able to, so it was not that he didn't, wasn't able to drive. But at that back in those days, they didn't have the medicines and everything. So being a responsible man and his, Mr. Worst, Gene's father, I have the high, highest, I have the highest respect for him. And the thing is that, that he did not drive and that's why they did not have a car because Mr. Worst was being, res, being a responsible citizen and saying, well, if I have yeah. an epileptic seizure, I could crash this car and kill somebody. So I didn't have, so he didn't have a, but later on and later on and a few years later, he did get a car because they were able to take that under control. And we'll talk about that car that pinto station wagon but i but but uh-huh. I, you know but this is full disclosure this is full disclosure this podcast right on both of our mm-hmm. sides full disclosure and you full disclosure I, and you know why i didn't remember that thought i just remembered why i didn't remember why because ruthie came out of the house that's right and you were smitten on her smitten i was fell over well let me just tell everybody <laughs> my, you you were gaga over her well, I'm well, well, she, let me put it this way half a new is still a beautiful woman she was beautiful and gorgeous back then and 
you were head over heels. Me, I was looking at the dark. Well, let me put it this way, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna leave it at this because I'm a happily married man. All right, we're gonna leave it mm-hmm. at this. You have to look at the time frame, the late seventies. Who was popular in late nineteen seventies? Farrell Fawcett and, da- Fawcett and Daisy Duke. Well, let me put yeah. it this way: if if Ruthie, that Ruthie was is not was my our our mutual friend who was still friendly with Glenn Nadell. That that's his mm-hmm. sister. So that was his sister. So all I knew was Glenn from 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 shop class. And then I'm, uh, and we're over there talking, and she comes out the front door, and she was she was Farrah Fawcett hair and Daisy Duke's legs and body. We'll leave it at that, okay? And and you said, well, I, I well, let me put this way: half of New York and half of New Jersey was in love with her. The reason why the other half wasn't because they didn't see it yet, okay? So let's exactly. so so let's move on. We'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on from there. So that's why. So that's why I probably don't remember the dart. To be quite honest, yes, with you. yes, there was a beautiful dart. And uh, by the way, just as a quick side note, I have that poster, that Farrah poster, in my office, in uh, my house. All right, that, that that was a great poster. Her in the bathing suit, right? Oh, it's a perfect poster. I have it. I still look at it every day when I go into my office. It's uh, like <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't blame you. I I, I don't. Blame, I think that was one of like best selling posters like ever in the world or something. You the know? best selling poster of all time. Was it the best selling? See, Gene knows all those like like oddball statistics. Like I know carburetors <laughs> and cylinder heads. I, you know, I, I, and I remember dates. But you know, oh no, no, that was that. But but you know, he knows. Oh no, that was the best selling poster. This is and and you know the other thing about Gene is that. You know, they say opposites attract, and we had the common bond of liking cars, which I want to get into that a little bit, the common bond of liking cars, all right? Mm-hmm. But, and we became w- almost instantaneously wonderful, wonderful friends. And, uh, and but the, the great thing was about the, later on in life, we traveled together cross country when 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 all yeah. when, when all we'll talk about that the spring nationals the first time up to my sisters when we fell asleep by the dam in tennessee and you had the, yes, ge- ge- the jerry two <laughs> this guy ate uh, what i'm talking about is that we're polar opposites this guy's as skinny as could be we were on our first road trip together we were down in tennessee right we went up to buffalo to see my sister we went down to ohio to zanesville ohio to the spring nationals and we went down to tennessee all right i don't even know why we went down to tennessee we went there and we was but we stopped in a ta truck stop in tennessee and he had two jerry reed specials do you remember that yes yes i do i was so hungry that day i have an appetite the lord has blessed me with a metabolism i i eat basically almost what a family of four would eat on a nightly and, basis. And you gain I, no I weight. You gain, appetite. you gain no weight. I walk by the buffet. I am 160, yes, I'm 167 pounds. I was 165 pounds when I graduated high school. I'm still a 32-inch 30, waist. Still the same. Haven't changed. I actually wear pants. I still have a pair of butterfly jeans, Levi's, 501s, from high school that I could still fit into. Uh, uh, it, and, and he's the opposite he's he's thin i mean uh, i think i was born with a 32 inch waist but anyway so the thing, <laughs> so the, so the thing is that he could i mean we, we, let me put this way I, I could eat but this guy could eat me under the table and to this day i mean 40 years later i remember two he said let me have another jerry reed special please whatever what was that meatloaf i don't remember what the heck it was but yeah, anyway it was meatloaf meatloaf potatoes, potatoes uh, mashed potatoes probably gravy, ca- carrots or green something. beans okay green beans that's yeah. why your mom 
Yeah, that's why your mom loved me. I used to go eat at her, your house, and I would eat all the food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I always ate all my food, but he, this guy always gets seconds and thirds. And he's skinny as a <laughs> skinny as a rail. Like I said, I would I, I would gain weight just looking at him eating. And the thing, <laughs> and the thing basically also is that whereas I am totally unathletic, he's very, very, very athletic. He was he would play basketball, he would play baseball, he'd play different different sports yeah. uh, but but you know so anyway so we're, we're, we're and which is good and the other thing basically full disclosure we always like different types of girls so going out and traveling was never a problem because when I, the girls i liked and the girls he liked not that we ever got any of them we just dreamed all right but <laughs> we dreamed <laughs> we dreamed all right but we did that and so it was it was it was wonderful it was a blessing and who knew right the day that you left who knew the day that you left the house to go for your walk, which you did every evening. I got on the motorcycle, mm-hmm. went for a ride, that there would be a friendship, a bond that 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 will last our whole lives. Together. Exactly. So. Transcended distance, transcended economic status, transcended whatever. Whatever whatever parameters they could mention these days. We we overcame everything and still brothers today. Yep. Never, never has changed. Never. I mean, you live 2,900 miles away from me. It's never changed. I could pick up a phone and we'll just talk. And it's like, it's been like, I spoke to you yesterday. You're very busy. That's because you did I speak to me retired. yesterday. You just yeah. spoke to me yesterday. That's why. Cause you just, spoke. that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I want to do is that I know you just retired. All right, I, 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 I forget about it. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. But the thing is that, and we'll talk about what your career was. But mm-hmm. you know, as much as you're my brother, and honestly, I have to say, I know I'm going to learn stuff about you in this podcast. And mm-hmm. and the thing is that that when let's go back i mean it was easy for me to like mechanical stuff because my father was interested in mechanical things he didn't have the passion that i had for it right but you know he fixed the cars and the farm we'd fix the tractor we had the lawnmower we had this fixed the well pump so i was very so i mean so that was something i was always very interested in i remember we had a 63 chevy and my father was the valve lifters were tapping the 194 six cylinder and uh and 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 he didn't want to December 14th right he didn't want to buy new valve lifters so we were going to take them apart and clean them so we were taking apart and he had me cleaning them and they, you know, we had to take the check ball out. Remember we were spring went flying someplace and we lost the check ball. We was on our hands and knees looking for a check ball for two hours. Found oh, it though. Oh, but, yeah. but, but anyway, so the thing is that so it was very easy because I was, that did not make me love mechanical things, but that exposed me to mechanical things be, and uh, let me recognize that I have a love for them. So my life was very simple that way. But with your dad not having a car, so turn. Let's turn back the clock now. Let's turn back to okay. to, 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 to long before I met you. So when when is your when what is your first memory of you thinking that as a little boy that you were interested in cars? Because like I said, your dad didn't drive because of his medical condition. You you you. So uh, how did when do you, what is your first recollection of that? When do you think you got that bug? Well, I know my mom always tells me that my very first word was truck. I bypassed mom, bypassed dad. You know, I was probably born this way, but my first real recollection, whatever that word is. Recollection. Recollection 
of, of cars. I remember as a little kid, and this is the days when someone bought a new car, everybody would go around to see it, but it was a big deal back then. Oh, sure. Well, somebody bought a brand new Buick. Okay. Probably a deuce and a quarter. This Ooh. was back in 1965, 64, somewhere around there. I was living in Elmhurst, Queens. Okay. And in these houses that um, were in Elmhurst, the, the garages were submerged. They were under the house. They right. had a, a, you actually drive down a hill into the garage, one car garage. Right. And I remember to this day when this Buick was coming out of the garage and I'm standing, I'm a little kid, and I see the muffler, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. In those days, GM put almost a diamond pattern on the mufflers. Okay. And I remember seeing that muffler shiny. It's like, wow, look at that. And, you know, and ever since then, it's, I, I guess that triggered something inside of me. And again, my dad not having a car, but, you know, there was the big kids down the block. You know, I was just, you know, five, six years old, four years old. And the big kids, I remember they had, you know, they were working on cars. They, they had, you know, late 50s Chevys and late 50s Fords. Because you would pick up those cars for a couple of hundred bucks back then. A couple hundred bucks? You pick them for 50 bucks. What are you talking about? Yeah, that, that was then. And they were always, and I would always walk up to them and, and I would peer inside and I would, what's that? What's that? What's that? You know, and then I would go back and then they built a soapbox racer, a soapbox car, basically, right. just a, you know, a piece of plywood, a piece of wood going down the center, a milk crate, uh, a front axle and a rear axle and, and carriages. And I remember looking at that, you know, thing, wow, wow. And, and, the, and the one big kid, he said to me, you can have that car for a dollar. Oh, thanks. So I went home and I got a dollar from my mom. And not from my dad. Yeah, no, he would have. Mom, he would have given you. Tell him she got it for a quarter. Exactly. So I remember giving the kid a dollar, and I got that my first car. You know, my first little thing. And there were hills in Queens, and we used to just ride down the hills, and we had no brakes. Right. Our brakes were our kids and yeah, Converse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that's what we stopped. Kia Flyers. That's how we stopped. And you know, and he'll. I don't know what happened with that car, but. You know, that was, the, that was the, the start of it for me. And then I would always walk around. I remember when the Camaro first came out. 67. That was probably the first, you know, real intro into cars. Because the Mustang came out when I was three. Right. It came out April 17, 64. So I was three years old. So I was maybe a little too young for the Mustang. But interesting, my uncle Mario... Uh, who recently just passed away, bought oh. a brand new 66 Mustang. But that'll come a little later. But when I was a kid, I saw the Camaro, and I go, wow, look at that. And I would walk up to the taillights, and I would, in those days, I used to stamp the year of the car in the right. taillights. Yep. You know, so I would see, it said, you know, 67, oh, my God. And there was a guy that had one, a brand new 67 Camaro. It was black, and it had the rally wheels on it. Because in those days, when you had disc brakes, you know, it would say right on the rim, right on the center cap. Right, disc brakes. Disc brakes, yep, yep. Disc brakes. I go, look, disc brakes. And I would look at this black Camaro. It was sitting outside. Was it an RS? It was rally sport? uh, I'm trying to think. It was... 
I don't remember stripes on it because an RS would have the stripe along the going around the band of the hood. I think it was just a regular Camaro. It wasn't okay. a Z28 or anything like that. And um, but just remember seeing that car, and and then I remember seeing the '64 Chevy. This uh, guy had one around the street from me, where um, I used to walk around the block. In those days, you know, kids just to leave the neighborhood. We used to walk around all the time. Sure. And it had the dual antennas. Oh yeah, I forgot and about I, yeah. That was those are pretty cool. Yeah, this was a '64 Impala. You know, just a really gorgeous car. I remember it was that. Um, that light blue. Yeah. I think it was Marina blue. The car was, and just beautiful, beautiful car. Was it an yeah, SS? Was it an you SS? You were more in the mechanical. I was definitely more into the aesthetic of the car. I was into and just both. Seeing these cars. Yeah. Just, they were just works of art for me. Oh, oh they were beautiful. Especially those GM cars. Oh, they were gorgeous. Man. They were just they were gorgeous. gorgeous. They were styled. You know, you had Bill Mitchell, and prior to Bill Mitchell, you had Harley Earl. You know, GM has the, was the first car company in the U.S. to actually have a, a, a styling department. Yeah. You know, just dedicated to all this stuff. And then, you know, the cars were just rolling sculpture back then. Man, I would just look at, say, a, a back window of a 68 Plymouth, like a Roadrunner or a Satellite, and that curvature window, how it curved out. Yeah. And then look at all those creases, those lines. It just, oh, man, it just set me off. And I, I can't draw for a lick. I can't make a circle or a straight line to save myself. But I definitely was into the design elements and then the sounds and the feeling. You hear a, yeah. the roar of these engines, you know, it just. Um, to this day, it still beckons me. I I, I still love a, a good sounding engine. I love induction roar. I love that whole thing that goes around with the car. And and just growing up, it just it it just kept going on and on and on and on. And I, I it, it fueled me. It's just like I got to get a car. I got to have a car. So <laughs> now, know? so now, so you saw that Buick. I'm going to back up for a minute. You saw that Buick. So if you saw the muffler, then you must have saw it as it was backing up the ramp out of the garage. Yeah, it was backing up the ramp uh, up the hill because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see the muffler. You know what I'm saying? And the thing yeah. is that. And so now, when did you buy your first car? I mean, I, I don't need the date, but when do you think you bought your first car magazine? And what uh, what magazine do you think it was? Well, it was popular hot rodding. I still have it, by the way. Still have it? Okay. Yeah, because I save a lot of stuff. It was popular hot rodding. It was probably 1974, I believe, 74, 75. By that point, the cars were waning and vans were really becoming the big craze in life. And I remember the, um, the cover had a blue Chevy van on the cover and it just you know and inside there was more articles about um doing customizing and things like that shared carpeting in the back of the van and porthole windows exactly exactly kind of it was kind of like a a a dark time because the quote-unquote back then they didn't call them muscle cars they were called supercars yeah and the supercar era was basically dead you know it pinnacled in 1970 and then after 70, it just kind of plummeted. And um, so vans became the big thing, customizing, right. you know, instead of wheels. Remember, there was appliance was the brand. Everybody got, a lot of guys put appliance wheels and on side their cars. Pipes and side and pipes. Side pipes and the fender flares and yeah. stuff like that. And even Dodge, 
came out with a street van. Right, the Remember street that? van. Yep, yep, 77, I think it was. 76 or 77. Yeah, it street had van. like a psychedelic, even the way it, street van was written. Yeah. It was psychedelic. Yeah. You know, it, it just it just was so cool. And, and that was the craze, you know, during the 70s and, you know, and coming, you know, into the early 80s, you know. And, and what was nice back then that I really loved uh, those muscle cars and supercars, you can get them cheap. Oh yeah. You can buy a, you know, my, my friend Pete bought a, a GTO convertible, a 65 GTO convertible, right? 389 four barrel with a two speed automatic, 800 bucks. Right. Yeah. $800. Yeah, and then today, forget about it. I mean, even the condition, $70,000 for the same car. Yeah, probably in <laughs> the same, in the same, condi- in the same condition that it was when he same bought condition, it. Yeah. But now, it's- I just I gotta find this out of it because I have this opportunity. All right. So the thing basically is is that so the so you never you never were a Buick guy, but your first love that got the whole thing going was a Buick. You became a Mopar. It was a Buick. Yeah. So so how come how come you think you never made a connection with Buick? I don't know. It's just you know I don't know. I know uh, you know Phil Levine. You remember Phil? Oh yeah. He had. Um, he had, he was into Buicks and, um, you know, I always respected the grand sport, you know, the GS 455 with a stage one, oh, stage one. Yeah. Hemi, but, Hemi killer, Hemi killer, baby. Hemi killer. Yeah. 510 foot pounds of torque. And one carburetor, one, one, qua- yeah. one carburetor. Quadrajet yep. too. Yep. Best carburetor made. Yep. I will stand on a stack of Bibles and say that, but, um, I don't know. I just kind of gravitated towards, I guess, the lesser brands like okay. the, the GTOs and, and the Roadrunners and, and the Chevelles. Yeah. I guess that's what I saw more of because okay. back then you didn't really see any Buicks. You know, they were, they were, they didn't sell very many of them. You know, they were more expensive in the day than say a comparable Chevy or a Pontiac. They just didn't sell in numbers. And, you know, and all the guys in the neighborhood were Chevy. I grew up in a very Chevy-oriented neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Shore Brothers ran Chevy. My neighbors, my neighbors, the Quay Brothers, they were a lot older. They were in college. I was a little kid. One of them had a 427 Biscayne. Ooh, nice. Right? Yeah, and this was the 435 horse, four-barrel aluminum, aluminum intake one. I remember seeing the shiny intake manifold. And then his brother, Dave... He had a 396, 66 Chevelle, 396. It was Cortez gold, black vinyl top, black interior. Just gorgeous, gorgeous car. So everywhere I went was Chevy, Chevy, Chevy. And you never had, and you never had a Chevy for crying out to you. You fell in love. I had a Camaro and I had two Corvettes. Oh, you're right. You did have a Camaro. Yeah, well, oh, you did have a car. I did the carburetor on that. Yeah. So anyway, the carburetor on it. Yeah. So I yeah, forgot but, about that. Um, but but I I don't know. And then but I always had a soft spot for like a Roadrunner. Okay. I always loved that Roadrunner. I just thought that whole thing with the bird. Because growing up, the Roadrunner was my favorite. Oh cartoon. yeah, beep 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 yeah beep beep. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah. You I know? thought that was so cool. I love that. You know. Yeah, that was so cool. I remember seeing my first '68 Roadrunner. It was on yeah. main. It was when it was, I was like, so it was brand new at the time. So it, I, I was, I it was brand new, but it was, it was warm weather. So it was probably the summer, summer of '68, and uh, we were living in Queens, and we had to come go back up to the farm. 
we had a tenant in the house and there was something going on or something so we 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 came home from the farm and my father had that 63 chevy 2 100 station wagon when we took the valve lifters apart him it was three on the tree 194 it wasn't the 230 194 303 no backup lights it had the cover plates for the back of it. It had AM radio. That was it. Um, that, 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 that was it. 13 inch wheels. And I don't know. I, I was a little kid. I was used to ride in the back of the station wagon. And I remember we pulled, mm-hmm. we were on Main Street. We were almost back to the house in Queens. And we pulled, it was dark. We pulled up to the stoplight. And there was a Roadrunner next to us, a 68 Roadrunner. Because they, there's the, for the, you guys that are too, too young to know, the, there was the Roadrunner and the GTX. The GTX came out first. And then the, that was more to like compete with the, with the uh, Buick class, a more higher class car. And the Roadrunner was more of a working man's muscle car. And it had to flip, mm-hmm. flip out rear windows. Remember to flip out rear windows in yeah. the back? Didn't have yeah. rolled down windows. Chrysler did that to save money. But mm-hmm. there was this roadrunner had the red stripe tires, and retrospectively, uh, because I remember hearing it, that it was not stock, so it was not. It was brand new, you know, less than a year old, couple of months old, but it was not stock. It sounded like it had a cam in it, and and I remember the guy took off when the light turned green, and the guy took mm-hmm. off, and and I, I remember that explicitly as as uh, as if it happened yesterday. And I always liked the Roadrunner. I didn't have the passion for the Roadrunner that you did, but I always loved it. Held held a special place in my heart. But to tell the audience, because <clears throat> people from around the world are going to be listening to this, to get back to you living in Elmhurst, Queens. That and mm-hmm. you're saying they were, all the guys had these cars and the '55 Chevys and all this other stuff, and they were and they were you know uh, that there was a big street racing scene in Queens, New York, on a highway, oh, yeah. a highway that was new at the time when we were little. Well, when you were a little kid, right? And it was called and you could people. You don't have to believe me. <clears throat> do an internet search connecting highways. I don't remember yeah. what, what what two road they connected. <laughs> they connected the, 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 the Brooklyn Queens Expressway and the Grand Central Parkway. So back then, I had a, a similar experience to Gene because I was living in Queens there as a little kid. Hated it, all right. But we had neighbors that were into cars, and uh, and everybody used to build these cars and they used to go race on connecting highway. They call it connecting highways, plural. I don't know if it was connecting highway. And and what happened was that they used to actually stop the traffic back then because there wasn't much traffic. Stop the traffic and the no, guys. there wasn't. And the guys used to race. So also, I guarantee you, those cars you saw growing up as a little kid, all right, they probably were running on connecting highways. And by the time oh, we. Oh, big time. They, right. they were going down there. They were going out to Fountain Avenue in Brooklyn. Yep. They were uh, going to Laurel Hill in Queens. There was a big, big racing scene in Queens back then. Yeah, very but Later big. on, after we left, um, we left uh, Elmhurst, then we moved to Flushing uh, in 68. Um, you know, there was racing all around there. There was Main Street. There was the service road. Uh, there was Main Street in Queens. And then there was the Long Island Expressway that intersected it. So we had the service road. Uh, for those of you around the world, the service road kind of feeds the expressway, kind of like a, a theater lane going into the expressway. And it was two lanes, and it was dead straight. And guys would race from Main Street going uh, going, wet, going east. Going out towards the, the island. Uh, going yeah. west. Going go, west. Going towards the city. Uh, along, the, um, 
by Phil's house over there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, raced on that side. And I was living on the other side of the expressway. And I would hear, wah, wah, wah. and a lot of those cars back then were four speeds. Yes. They- and so you would hear like, bang, bang, bang. Then I would just, I would come out of the house, you know, it was like seven o'clock, eight o'clock. I was probably about nine, 10 years old at the time. And I would just go, there was an overpass between the expressway, a footbridge. And I would just stand on the, on the overpass and I would watch these cars go flying down the service road. Man, it was it was just great to see these cars go. Unbelievable. It, it's, just to hear the sounds. It, it's funny because, you know, we had the same experience up here because Cat Swamp Road was a one-lane dirt road, Route 570, mm-hmm. there was nobody on it. And then as you were to go north of our farm on 517, Route 80 wasn't there then. There was the, well, Freeborn family's farm there, and there were flats there. And mm-hmm. you could, and in the summertime at night, when it got late at night, well, I don't know if it was late, it was dark, or you little kid, so everything seems late once it got dark, it was, it was kind of cool, right. you know, you could hear them racing, and then, yeah. but, 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 so I remember one time, my father took me with a flashlight and my bicycle, and, and he didn't realize that they were, he thought they were racing by our farm, so he took me down there to see it, but it was nothing there, it was mm-hmm. just dark. So, but I, right. I never did see him, but they used to, but it was the same thing, because, <clears throat> you know, the the brothers from a different mother, we were basically having, you were having a an urban, a city, well, a suburban, I should say, suburban mm-hmm. exposure to this, and at the same time, I was having a rural exposure, but foundationally, mm-hmm. it was the same thing. It was this it was, exactly it, parallel courses. We were, we're, we're running parallel to each other. You know, this, this you know but it's just so cool back then. It uh, was it was a wonderful. It was it was you know this is going to sound. Uh, hey, everybody knows in the audience is listening to this. I'm not politically correct that they and people say it's. It was a wonderful time to be a young man. It was yeah. it was yeah. it was a wonderful time to be a young man, and there was there was there was just so many things that that I know that you and I both shared the awe of the world that we mm-hmm. and and I used to ride my bicycle when I was in the city there, and used to go for walks, and I used to ride my bicycle. I used to love to keep riding around the block, and because every time I went back around the block, there was a different car, there was a different this, there was a different truck to see, you know, and it was just exactly. it, it, was, it was just constant. It was constant, and then you you. So, what was the first car you dreamt about having? First car I dreamt about having. Not as a young man, because back then you'd buy whatever you could get for a couple of hundred dollars. But before you were, before you were old, you know, maybe ten years old, eleven years old, whatever. What did you dream about having? Well, the first, it was way out of my reach, but I, 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 and I actually drew it, and I actually still have the drawing. Home was a Ford GT40. Wow. Wow. That was that car captivated my life. When I I remember the car, I remember, you know, with the magazines and seeing it cuz that was a big thing when Ford went into Le Mans back then. That was national news and they had a TV show on at the time called Wide World of Sport. Yep, I remember that. Saturday. That was on Saturday afternoon, right? Yes, Saturday afternoons. And they featured those cars so that was 1966, 67, 68, and 69. Okay. Those four years, those cars ran. Actually, 65 also, but they didn't win. But 
wide world of sports featured those cars. And I would look at them and go, wow. And I actually drew one. I still have it. It's on a piece of yellow lined paper. I drew a GT40 and I drove a 68 and I drew a 68 Corvette. Okay. I actually got them framed and they're in my kitchen hanging up. Wow. And I saved those pictures from the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that, that car was probably the first one that I, obviously you couldn't buy one. Right. Uh, but, you know, I didn't know at the time. I thought, oh, look, I could get one later on. Duh, what do I know? Yeah. You know? So, but that was probably the first thing. So I have always been gravitated towards race cars. Okay. Even to this day, I, I gravitate. To, I love the single focus purpose of a race car okay. not so much a drag car but a road race car i love the fact that you know these things were built from the ground up to, to run for miles after mile after mile i mean you can figure you're running 24 hours le mans you're, you're driving almost three thousand miles well i never realized that you know, yeah it's almost three thousand miles and that car is being built and tortured for three thousand miles you know try to do that with a family car you know, probably wouldn't stand up going from here to California. But I love that single-purpose machine. And I don't know, it just kind of grasped me. And, and I was, so I knew my first car had to be some kind of a hot rod, okay. a muscle car. I, I could not get, you know, a Maverick or, you know, a Nova or something, you know, unless it was like a, a 396 Nova. But I knew I, at that point, like, into, into my in the late sixties and into early seventies, I knew I was going to get a hot rod, a muscle car, and and that's where my lot my um my my life kind of went towards the muscle cars, and still to this day, I still have hot rods and muscle cars. And yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. <laughs> except we got. Except, <laughs> except we got. You know that that's what's great also about our friendship is that you know. For the most part, the things, and I know you and I, like I say, we're, you know, we're, we're brothers. The things that we liked as little kids, we still like today. And, uh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. so, so, I mean, so, so it, people could say, well, you never grew up. And I'd say, no, it's the exact opposite. We were mature when we were young. Our tastes, our tastes were mature. So the thing exactly. is, so exactly. it wasn't, that wasn't that we, you know, just because I liked it when I was a little kid, that doesn't mean that, that I never grew up. It means that I, that my tastes were mature back then. But now what, now what car magazines did you, did you, did you read for the most part growing up? Back then it was car and driver, hot rod and popular hot rodding. Okay. You didn't read car craft. Yeah. You didn't read car craft. Not so much. You know, I, I, I always found car craft even as a kid, to be more of a substandard magazine, it, it, it didn't really focus so much on racing. No. It was more of... Nuts and bolts. It was the car craft was more nuts and bolts, like how to put a right, cam exactly. in. Right, Hot Rod, and I have articles. I have magazines of Hot Rod from the 50s and the 60s. I have a whole bunch of them. I, again, I have, I have collections of stuff. And... Um, you read those articles back then, and those were very technical. And you can actually probably get a pseudo engineering degree reading Hot Rod magazine from the late fifties to the early sixties. I agree. The, the the articles were were 
beautiful. A lot of those articles back then were written by factory engineers. I mean, I remember there was a white paper um, on camshaft technology, you yeah. know, and, and this is written in the 50s and the 40s, you yeah. know. The stuff is just incredible back then. And, and that stuff really drew me in, you know, how to make your car faster, how to make your car handle better. You know, always improvements, improvements and stuff like that, you know, and, and car craft just, you know, shag carpeting, you know, just never, never kind of appealed to me. I, I, I've definitely gravitated more towards the technical end of the cars, you know, the single purpose, the race cars. Um, Hot Rod Magazine was one of the few magazines that covered Bonneville back then. Right. And um, they always had, you know, every August, or they guess to be the September or October issue, right. they had, um, you know, the Bonneville Speed Week. Right. You know, Mickey Thompson and Challenger 1 and all those cars back then. On you know, our fonts with the rocket car. That's right. You know, I mean, piston engines, jet engine cars. That was great. You know, just all kinds of stuff back then. They even ran back then. Um, it was Bobby Allison. Was it Bobby Allison? Yeah, was he was Bob an IndyCar Indy car driver now. On so uh, they... I'm trying to drive, think of his name. Um, but anyway, they took the K. I don't. You probably do you remember the '69 Dodge Charger uh, Daytona? Yeah, with number the... seventy-one, the K and K. Yeah, yes, K and K um, Insurance. K and K Insurance. They ran a stock NASCAR because that's in '71 when NASCAR banned the Superbird and the Daytona. They said, if you have to run those cars, you have to run a 303-cubic-inch engine. They had to take the Hemi out. So they just kind of, Christ just kind of gave up on the car. But they they took that car, stock, as it came off a NASCAR track, went on to Bonneville. It went 220 miles an hour in a stock-bodied limit. With breaker points. <laughs> With breaker points. With breaker points in a Hemi. Yeah, 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 just breaker incredible. points. Incredible. And, and that was just, you know stuff of legends to me, yeah. you know, I mean, to take a stock body Plymouth, you know, and just run it, you yeah, know, it was wonderful. You know, first what? car to ever, first NASCAR, in those days, a stock car, first NASCAR ever to hit 200 miles an hour. That was good. It was, one, it was, it was, it was, like I say, it was a wonderful time because the, the, um, American exceptionalism was so on display, and if you happened to have, you know, was a young man like you and I had had some some interest in that, it was just the the world was just full of awe, and that you couldn't, oh, yeah. you couldn't wait wait to become part of it. You couldn't wait to oh, yeah. to become part of it. So now, uh, so now you you're coming of age. You get your driver's license, right? You get your mm-hmm. driver's license, and I remember your first car. And yeah, because we already had met, we already had met, and it was the oh, it, yeah. it was the energy crisis of 1979, and that's an important yes. that's an important dynamic in this story for people, of for the younger listeners is that we had two energy crises or gas shortages. There was one in mm-hmm. seventy in seventy three going into seventy four, and then there was mm-hmm. there was one in 1979, and they were both caused by conflicts in the Middle East. Interestingly enough. Yeah. The one in 1979 was not throughout the whole country. It was more like on the East Coast over here and maybe the West Coast mm-hmm. because my sister was going to school in Kansas City. 
and we and I drove my mother out there, my '68 Dodge Dart. And once we got out of out of out of the New York metropolitan area, we had no trouble getting gas going all the way to Kansas City and back. But so, but exactly. but, but living in you were living in Queens. And 1979 mm-hmm. was a gas shortage year. They had odd, even mm-hmm. license plates to get gas and limited gas. And so now you go. So tell us, tell us, and tell me, please, about the day that you either found out about the car you bought. I didn't tell anybody what it was yet, what it was, mm-hmm. and how that all transpired. So let's back up and see that. I want to hear that story. Okay. Well, it all transpired back in the year 1979. I was 18 years old, right? I was born in August of 1960. So back up to early part of the year, I had settled on a car I wanted, and it was going to be a Plymouth Roadrunner. Okay. I wanted a 383 car with a four-speed. Okay. Not that I knew how to drive a four-speed, but I wanted a four-speed. Just I want to rip gears, Right. We'll go on to who taught me how to drive a four-speed later on. And a 64-foot pickup truck on the Cat Swamp Road. <laughs> that's right. And uh, so at the time, they had obviously no internet or anything like that, but we did have the bylines. And I don't know if you remember those. Uh, I, remember, days, I, I remember. I remember. They would come out. I remember the bylines, but we need to tell the audience what it was. The bylines well, was. The bylines, they were but, simply put. A little newspaper. Uh, it was a little, little. It was on newsprint. It wasn't a full size. It was a small format, and it would come out every Tuesday. And it was basically for the tri-state area. And you would put and right. and, and it would be alphabetized. So you look under P for Plymouth, F for Ford, and people would put ads in. So all it was was classified ads for cars. I don't even think there were pictures in it. Were there pictures? No, there were no. Later on, years and years and years later, they put. Uh, they put um, pictures, but when we were looking for cars, it was just a small little ad, and I would go right to the to the ad, and I would look under the P for Plymouth, you know, uh, bypass the Pontiac, and I would look, and I remember there was a '69 Roadrunner for sale. It was copper, black roof with a black stripe along the side around the upper belt line, and then it was a four speed, but the car was in Brooklyn. Now, oh. living in Queens in those days, you had nothing to do with Brooklyn, as Brooklynites had nothing to do with Queens. Right. Brooklyn, to me, was another country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't know anything about it. Never even been. I've probably been there once or twice. Never really been there. So anyway, so you were in New Jersey at the time, because you were living in Jersey, I believe. And so I, I contacted my friend uh, Tommy Shore, and I called up the owner the car and he gave me directions how to get to his house so tommy gave me a ride but we got lost for a minute or two maybe five minutes we got lost in brooklyn somewhere like avenue u avenue m easy enough to happen easy enough to happen right because queens everything is a grid kind of brooklyn everything was kind of a mishmash so anyway so i got there five minutes late the car was sold the guy okay. in front of me bought the car. Oh, wow. Did you see the oh car? Oh, my did, God. Did, I was hot. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It was like a brand new car. It was copper, black top, black interior, four-speed, Magnum 500s. You know, it had white letter tires on it at the time. 
you know, had the factory chrome exhaust kits on it. And this was a hard top, so it had oh, to wow. roll down rear windows. Oh, because it didn't have the didn't have the flip outs. Right. In '69, they um, they, they they added a, a third body style. Okay, I didn't know that. Run up lineup. Yeah. So it was just a beautiful, beautiful car. Three eighty three. The car I wanted. Well, twelve hundred bucks. Right. Wow. I had the money in my pocket, and that was that. But anyway, um, that was sold. Now. I had another friend back then, Perry. Oh, he had Perry. a 72 Roadrunner. Oh, he had his Roadrunner before you? Yes, he did. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Perry had a 72 Roadrunner with a 400 uh, four-barrel car, and it was that, powder blue, that thing and was a it dog. was a Canadian hey, Canadian, Roadrunner. Yeah, a Windsor, Ontario-built Roadrunner, which was very, very rare. Very rare. Very rare. They only made a handful of them up there. Yeah. So he started to come around. I, I kind of knew him from high school too. And he started coming around, you know, we were hanging out at the high schools and, you know, Perry would drive by and I would see it. And, you know, I was never really into that body style. The 71, 72 went a whole different direction. I really liked the boxy road runners from 68 to 70. But, you know, the more I kept looking at this car and then Perry let me drive it. And I said, Oh, this is, kind of nice it's different looking it's kind of looked more like a chevy like a chevelle right right you know or gto at the time kind of the same body style and um so it kind of grew on me so i remember getting the bylines one day and then i see an ad 71 plymouth roadrunner orange uh 383 auto uh in college point but i wasn't too far away (laughs) Not too far away. I knew with exactly where it was. So Artie Hud, let me back up even a few more minutes. So I'm sitting outside my front stoop, right? And my dad comes off the bus, you know, and he's walking down the street. So I run to him and I say, Dad, I said, I see a car I want to get. We're going to go look at it tonight. Artie's going to take us, Right. So this would have been the first car in the family. Right. My dad didn't have a car. He didn't have a license, so it was me. So the Plymouth was kind of nice because it it would have accommodated, you know, four of us at the time. So he said, okay, what am I going to do? So we run. Artie takes us down there. The car is in a front yard, sitting in the mud, sort of. And it's looking at it. It's. It's a, it's got, it was hit in the right front, so the, the bumper was pushed back, and it had a, a little crunch in the right front fender. And, uh, but it was an original 383, automatic, black interior. It had a nicer interior. Um, had a bench seat. Had I didn't a bench know seat. This until, yeah, and then I didn't know this until a few years ago. Just a few years. It was a track pack car. Oh, wow. factory track pack car. Didn't even know it. Wow. Very rare car at the time. So we made the deal on the car and uh, I brought it home and there it sat. Now, I didn't really know what to do with it, even though I was had my head filled with all kinds of performance parts and stuff like that. I didn't really know. Yeah. So this is where you and your dad really took me under your guy's wings, showed me how to do breaks, showed me how to set points, showed me how to, um, 
work on a carburetor, adjust carburetors. Basically, you taught me everything I know. Everything. I, I, I don't know about that, but uh, I but, would say yes. Yeah. And remember going to Sears and getting those tools. Oh yeah, and I bought my tack and throw meter in Sears, a big tack and throw meter. You bought the same one a couple of years after that. Still got it. Yeah. Still use it. Yeah, that was a good. And um, yeah, it's made in America, lasts forever. Yep. But yeah. you know, and and that's where you know I started to get my hands dirty, started to work on this stuff because you were kind of still going back and forth, I think, between Queens and and Jersey at the time, right? I yeah. believe you still had the house in Queens. Right. Yeah, so you had on 73rd Avenue and you had that garage door that opened up so when it rained you could still work on the car because right, the engine right. was covered. Yeah. Yeah, that was your dad's thing. And um, so he uh, was showing me how to do everything you know, set my points as the car would pop. The minute you got on it, pop, pop, pop. Because the points were floating. So we put new points in it. Put, you know, adjust the carburetor if it had a holly on it. In those days, in 71, if you had a 383 automatic, you got a holly. If okay. you had a 383 four-speed, you had a Carter AVS okay. from the factory. So they put that on. So you showed me how to adjust the carburetor, adjust the float level. I mean, you guys taught me how to buy tools, how to do everything. It was, you know, I was getting a great education. Yeah. And your dad would always yell, Sergeant Hansen, yeah, when Sergeant he was in Hansen's, the Air Force. Yep, Sergeant Hansen stories, yeah. And that, so that's yeah. how, so now, uh, so Artie Hood actually drove you to, to and how did you get the Roadrunner home? Who drove it? I drove it. Oh, you drove it, Okay. You already had, I had my license. Oh, you had your license. I had my license. You drove it home. But we had no license plate, so we took one of the plates off of Artie's car and threw it in the back. Yeah, those are the good old days. <laughs> Today, so, you know, because in those days, New York didn't put a sticker on the plate. Right, so nobody, yeah. As long as you got it no. home safe, yeah. Those, those, yeah. Those, those are the good old days. But what I, wanted, you know, what I want to tell the audience, though, is that, so you have this, and this is, and this is something that, that Gene didn't know what I was going to talk about is that you have this young this young boy growing up in Queens. His father, due to medical condition, doesn't have a car, then later on got a car. All right, got a car. He's, he's, he sees this Buick backing out of a driveway, all right, and sees the muffler and falls in love with it because of that. He, see, he sees all of that, you know what I'm saying? And the thing is that, mm -hmm. so now he comes and... <clears throat> He becomes a young man, buys his first car for what did you pay for that road runner? Twelve hundred dollars? Twelve hundred bucks. Yeah, twelve I remember it had aftermarket air conditioning in it you took out. But anyway, um, Yes, he yanked it right the hell out. Right. But anyway, so now you take this you take this young man and he has a passion for cars, but his his work life, his career goes in a different direction and he gets a job in a very prestigious university in New York City called Columbia University. Uh, and he mm -hmm. and he's in, involved with uh, I, I, I don't know what you did purchasing. I don't remember what exactly. I mean, he wasn't a professor. Financial services. Financial yeah, services. We, we did all the budgets for the, all the libraries. Uh, and, and he's and he's working in Columbia University. He's I'm I'm up, back on the farm where I belong. He's in mm -hmm. he's in Queens, still living in the same same house with his parents, commuting into Manhattan, taking the subway, and mm -hmm. then he does that for a number of years. Buys a mm -hmm. buys Six a years, new, yeah. buys a new Mustang GT, which is only mm -hmm. not, not an important part of the story, right? But one day he has an epiphany moment, 
and he realizes that that is not his dream. That is not his dream to work in Columbia, you know, even though financially it was, a, it was a smart move, but he had to pursue his dream. So what he does mm-hmm. is that he, and he leaves Columbia University and he mm-hmm. had, he had a, a, a Perry Packer with the road runner, right? He had yeah. Perry Packer's brother-in-law who was older than he was married. Perry's yep. older sister. Barry. Mm-hmm. Barry was a service manager in a car dealership in, in in Queens, New York, right by the 59th Street Bridge, which would take from Queens to Manhattan for people listening around the world. So this is an urban area. And mm-hmm. I remember you called me up here on the farm and you told me that you were leaving Columbia University and you got a right. job, all right? And you went from this prestigious job in Columbia mm-hmm. University because of your passion mm-hmm. for cars and you got a job as a as a cleanup guy a maintenance maintenance guy in a car dealership and then exactly you were mop I mean so literally mopping the floors right but the thing yep. is that you were mopping the floors and this is and 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 you were and you were doing that but you were happy to be around cars being part of the business and what have you and the thing mm-hmm. is that but in a very short time and this is what I'm leading up to and I'm so and to this day I'm so proud of you and when that and and as this transpired I am was so proud of you and still am as i said is that you went from in a very short time from being hired as a as a janitor for lack of better terms as a janitor right. to clean up the, the dealership and clean up the bathrooms and then you progressed in rapid succession and you actually became the service manager and then when that dealership group opened up a new porsche dealership you were basically running the whole porsche dealership so you were like a drag car you left the line so you have this young man so talk about mm-hmm. an american success story you have a young man that came in mopping the floors and within a couple of years was running the whole operation and if that's not an inspiration to those in the audience about following your passion i don't know what is yeah, I I, I I remember I I went to Barry and it was a Mercedes Benz dealer, Silver Star Motors on Northern Boulevard, thirty six eleven Northern Boulevard, one 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 zero one. I still remember the address. And I got in there and I was like, wow, this is great. I remember meeting the the, the shop uh, shop foreman. He handed me a broom, go clean. So, and I was, I was happy. I was cleaning. I was, you know, very much into it. I loved it. Loved cleaning. Loved to, you know, you know, you know, banter with the guys and they would let me look and see what they were doing. You know, in those days, Mercedes was all fuel injected. So they had what was called a C, uh, CIS, constant system, CIS, 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 constant injection system. So they were, you know, they had lambda meters and they were kind of going all over and showing me and doing this and doing that. And I was, I was in heaven. I, I would have worked there for free. I loved every minute of it. And then, uh, maybe about a year or so into my tenure there, I saw some Acuras coming in and there was an Acura store next door. That they so owned, that they I, owned that they own, that we are going to own. Right. So I went to the owner, his name is Ray Rivardo. I went to Ray after, you know, afterwards. And I said to Ray, if, if there's any opportunities over at Acura, uh, I would love to give it a shot. He said, okay. 
So I'm sitting there working, and uh, you know, here I am. My hair is down to my shoulders, you know, and I'm in my work uniform, you know. And next thing you know, he comes up and says, "Are you still? Uh, were you serious about what you were saying about wanting to work at Acura?" I go, "Yeah, I'm. I'm I, I, I was dead serious." He goes, "Okay, Monday you started Acura." So here I am, hair down on my shoulders. I got a haircut over the weekend. I bought a couple of suits. I was going in as a service advisor. And then I quickly went from service advisor to assistant manager to manager to a a, a service manager of our Acura dealership. And we were growing the business. We took over another building. We were growing and growing and growing. And then in 1996, they wanted to branch off their Porsche franchise into a standalone. We were going to be only the second or third old standalone Porsche dealership in the country. And they asked me to go and uh, set it up. So I went out to Long Island, uh, Roslyn Road uh, up there, and uh, we set the dealership up, dealership up, and I became a service director. I ran the parts department and the, and the, and the service department. And, uh, I did that for 14 years. <laughs> and you, and you, and not only, and I'm going to brag about you, not only that, but you were award winning because I know that you went to Hawaii on a trip that you won for service excellence yeah. from Porsche. I know you went to many other different places. Well, that, was, that was accurate. I won that was a accurate, service correct. manager of the year okay, for award. The, that was the Hawaii for trip? Accurate. So they had an all expense paid trip to Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, and you went to Hawaii. I know you won other awards. And then you mm-hmm. uh, you got married, and you uh, were out in you were out in Long Island. And and actually, the yep. way I mean, the way you met your wife was a car association because you met it. You met met her through a mechanic at the Porsche dealership where you were yep. running. And then yep, and, blind date. You know, Tom Tom Moringer, He um, introduced us on a blind date, and. Um, then eleven months later, I was married. Married, and then, and then you both got sick of. I mean, the, the thing what what the audience may not understand is that even though we're compressing this as far as geographic distance is concerned, when you live where Gene did out in New York City, out into Long Island, it's a. Let me put it this way: fifty miles in Long Island is like going eight hundred miles in Nebraska. Right, so uh, oh, yeah. so I mean the traffic is just it was just, just, it was it just yeah. so yeah. I, and we, and we had, we had Gene and his wife built the house they built a new house out in further east uh, out in Long Island where it was more rural he was commuting west towards New York City and the commute was just terrible and they had no children and they um, ended up Gene had some relatives in Las Vegas and they went out there and they ended up buying a house in Las Vegas. But at this particular point, you were kind of burned out from the car business, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's not so much the cars I was getting tired of. It was the people because at that point when Porsche, and I I hope I don't offend anybody, but when Porsche introduced the Boxster, that to me was a downfall because now you had entry level. Yeah. And so Prior to that, you had those air-cooled 911s, and those cars were tanks. You could not destroy an air-cooled 911 if you tried. Those cars were built. They lasted. The owners loved them, you know, and it was a certain buyer. And, and maybe I was, it, was a, it was a male. It was a well-to-do male, lawyer, doctor, a professional. And, you know, and the cars were purchased. They weren't leased. 
They were owned. You know, they, the cars would come in on Monday. You know, what do you need done? Don't worry about it. Just have it ready for Friday. Don't even call me. Just do whatever it needs. No problem, Phil. You know, we would get the cars all set up. But then when the Boxster came out and they went to the water-cooled engine to save money back then, Porsche took the same engine, the 3.6-liter water-cooled engine, and double-sleeved it to fit the 2.5-liter engine. I think it was a 2.5-liter yeah, engine. Yeah, it was 2.5. And um, so the inner sleeve was pulling out, so locking up these engines. So we had car At one point, you can ask Jason, I had seven cars sitting in the shop, all boxsters, waiting for engines. With no hardly any miles and on them. Hardly any miles on them. Hardly any. Glenn, Glenn had two engines in his I know. car. Yeah, and and it's it just a problem. And even even Porsche called me and said, "What was going?" I I said to Porsche, "I said it's the first time I ever, you know, sit back at at a, at a car company because I had to deal with factory reps." I said, "If you could build a decent engine, I wouldn't be in this situation right now." Yeah. And then I hung up on him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Him. Yeah, yeah. So, so. You know, we went on and on and all the BSC. One of the things when you are a service manager slash service director, not only is the cars your problem, the employees are your problem, the facilities are your problem. So everything in that building was my problem. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, it's just you become, you know, and it, it burns you. And then the commute. So it was 40 miles, exactly 40 miles from the front door at the dealership to my house. An hour in the morning, two hours at night. And it was bumper to, wasn't a fun two hours. It was bumper to bumper. It was just ridiculous. And if, it, and if, it, sno- and if it snowed, the two hours was uh, four hours. So, yeah, so yeah uh, I would literally get home, you know, eat, go to bed, wake up at four o'clock, head back to work. Yeah. You know, because I would open the store. You know, I'm, I was a very diligent, still am, I'm a very diligent person. You know, I take my responsibility seriously. I don't just slack off and go, hey, you do it. You know, I did everything. I made sure the work was ready, lined up. So when the guys came into work, everything was set to go. Yeah. And and I was just getting tired. Now, I had come out to Vegas in 92 for oh, the first was right, for the Silver State Classic, right, right. Right. I drove across country in my Firebird, which we will talk about later. And I still have it, by the way. And... Um, and then we and I, then you and I went out in 94. Uh, and I always loved the fact that it's March and I could wear shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. That always appeals to me because that's my uniform. Right now I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And that's what I wear all the time. And I loved it. The, you know, the city was small back then. You know, you could drive. There was wide open roads. And I said, you know... This is kind of nice. So I always kept that in the back of my mind. Then I remember one day, it was a beautiful May day in 2002. Not a cloud in the sky. I'm in law. I'm on the expressway in bumper to bumper traffic. I'm in my, uh, my Dakota pickup truck. And I called my wife from the truck. And I said, well, prior to that back up, uh, when I went out with my wife, we had seen a house and we kind of liked it. It was a single story, beautiful house, hardwood floors, sub-zero refrigerator, just a house that I could know I could not afford on Long Island, you know, but in Vegas I could. So I kind of kept that house in the back of my mind. And then 
you know, one day on the expressway, I called my wife and I said, see if that house is available, make an offer. And if they take the offer, we'll buy it. So I lowballed them by a few thousand dollars. Then they capped and they countered with a couple of thousand more. So I said, sold. The next day I sent them a check. I gave notice on my job and that was it. And then moved. Moved to Las Vegas, and then so you guys moved, and it was a. I was I had the opportunity to stay at that house. It was a gorgeous home. You would tend to think like a movie star would be walking out from behind the wall, but then, yeah. but then you you made a change in your career. You came out to Vegas. Mm-hmm. You, you went through some hard times, and then yeah, you made it, a, it was it was hard. You made you made a change in your career, and then you ended up leaving not the passion of having cars. But I even had said this in, a, in, a, in one of my podcasts, a radio show, not too long ago, is that you know it's lots of time. Lots of times, your passion is not a good way to make a living. <laughs> so anyway, no, but, it's not. And, it's not. And uh, and then you got a job with the with the TSA. Uh, yep. Well, it, I'll tell you, back up when you're when you're well. The economic times of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, really hit Las Vegas hard because we're a tourist driven economy. So the tourists weren't coming anymore. So I was working for a home builder and I was their customer service rep. You know, I figured, Hey, houses and cars, customer service, is customer service. Right. So I was actually pretty good at it. So after 30 years in business, the home builder went out of business literally within a year. So I was tasked. Now I've never been a superintendent of a job site before. I never built a house. You know, I never, I didn't know anything about houses. So I was tasked with finishing out these houses in Pahrump. So after that one year was done, I was out of work for the first time in my life. Um, so I was 49, 50 years old. And, you know, you're competing with jobs for 21 year olds. You know, it was really hard. So one day I went online and filled out an application for TSA. And 11 months later, I'm getting sworn in. You know, this was in 2000, uh, 2012. So I was out of work for about a year and a half. Yeah, it was. And, um, yeah, it was was hard, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, but, you know, thankfully I was always smart with my money. I, I, I always save. So I always save for that rainy day. And that's my dad, you know, always save. So I saved my money. I got unemployment. You know, I live conservative. I've never been an extravagant person, even though I have cars, but I live very conservatively. You know, I'm not, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't gamble, I don't do anything. I'm actually quite boring. I like to read. And um, so I managed to get through that year and a half and started with TSA and things looked up. (laughs) Yeah, and and the thing also is that like I said, I could you know, I, I could brag a little bit because you're, you're really leaving out because you're not putting much value in it in your own mind, but it really needs to get to the audience because I, I, want, I, want, I want you to uh, inspire someone. You know, the whole purpose of, the, yeah. of this On the Road podcast is, is to inspire someone at any age to aspire to do something with their life. And whatever that aspiration mm-hmm. is, is irrelevant. Your aspiration doesn't have to be mine or vice versa. But you had, from 3,000 miles away, and I noticed for a fact, you had the same meteoric, like a meteor, meteoric rise 
in TSA, mm-hmm. in TSA as you did when you got the mop in your hand. Really, yeah. I'm not being I'm not being a wise guy. Mop in your hand at the car dealership, and you ended up be, be becoming part of an elite group within TSA, and you were involved with the presidential inaugurations when the Pope visited. You know, until and when the Pope visited New York, when the hurricanes hit Puerto Rico, you were there in, in Florida. Mm-hmm. So, and I and if I didn't know you, I would never know that TSA had that elite group of people that yeah. would, that would go to these different that would work hand in hand. I remember at at President Trump's inauguration, you worked hand in hand with the Secret Service. So it was this mm-hmm. it was this this meteoric rise that really was foundational. In you could really look back and say that. And this is not a reach if you look at it. Then when you saw that muffler on that Buick, right? It put, yeah. it, it, it put a it put a passion in you. But you can say, well, what are you talking yeah. about, Hot Rod? Because working for TSA has nothing to do with cars. No, but it has nothing to do with cars. But it taught you the discipline of working on cars. It taught you the critical thinking of working on engines, of working on cars. It taught it taught you the uh, the patience. Of, of all of that that allowed you to take those skill sets that were taught someplace else under the, mm-hmm. under the hood of a, a old Plymouth, all right? All right, and, oh, then, yeah. and then take that and then convert that into a career because the foundation was laid through other means and allowed you to have that meteoric rise through TSA and have such wonderful, I mean, basically experience. You went to Quantico. We don't need to divulge any of this. You spent some time at Quantico. You were, you know, all these different places. I mean, that you, that the average American would never, ever, ever be exposed to or be able to see. And Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's one thing I've always found out. If you're going to work for someone or you're going to do something, you do it to the fullest extent that you possibly can. When I first walked into the Porsche dealer, to the Mercedes dealer, I saw my back, my boss, Barry. He pulled in with a brand new, what they're going to be company cars at the time, demos. He pulled in with a brand new 300E, right? And I said to myself, I'm going to be that guy someday. And that's when it just, you just do things, you know, you could just sit and languish and just get your salary and go to work and, and, and never aspire, never to get, or you could do the same thing. You know, there were a lot of people I worked with, you know, that I was sweeping their bay. Next thing you know, I'm their boss. You're right. That's what I'm saying. American success story. American success story. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, you could, yeah, you could look at anything and just say, Hey, I could either stay here or I could do something. When I went to TSA, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I'm, I'm not a big flyer. I mean, I remember going through the pat-downs and going through all that stuff, but I really didn't know anything about it. But when I got in, I just worked hard. You know, I had the same work ethic, you know, in the from the private sector going into the public sector. And and in the public sector, it's a little different pace because it's, it's all-for-one and one-for-all mentality, you know, because it's a government job. So, but I still, I worked hard. But it was a, it was a, some people that recognized my hard work, and they and I remember the day I was it was July, it was twenty let's see twenty fifteen in July July twenty fifteen I was home because my days off varied it wasn't just weekends I was off Tuesday Wednesday I got a phone call uh, from a gentleman named Bob Sullivan 
And he said to me, hi, my name is Bob. I'm with TSA. I have to know now, do you want to go to New York for two weeks for the Pope? Okay, I'm there. And that was the start of it. I got on a team. It's called TSST, Transportation Security Support Team. It's within TSA. And I've been to, I was there with the Pope working with Secret Service. I was at ground zero when the Pope was giving a speech. And we were letting in all the first responders that were at 9-11. And a lot of these people, men, women, had cancer because of all the asbestos in the air at the time. And we were talking with them and we allowed them to go in first. And then the groups of people afterwards, we were screening with secret service. And I mean, that was just incredible. I got a chance to screen for the president. I screened for the vice president at the time. Um, I was asked to go on that same deployment. We rapidly went to central park and we screened for the Beyonce concert that was going on. And then after that, I traveled to a number of airports to work. Um, and then I went to my first inauguration was the Trump inauguration. That was quite an honor. We were screening people. We were working with Secret Service directly. Um, and then I went to the hurricane. Uh, that was uh, Harvey, Irma, and Marie. Uh, yeah, Marie. Um, I was down in Florida. I went to Anniston, Alabama. That's where the FEMA training center is. I was there for two days uh, getting trained by FEMA. And then I was deployed. I was uh, down in Georgia, then Florida, then Puerto Rico, and then the U.S. Virgin Islands. That was a two-month deployment. And then back, and then I went to another deployment uh, to the um, uh, Biden um, inauguration. And um, just, you know, just so many things. I, I, I'm truly, truly blessed to yeah, be yeah. part of that agency, you know. And, and, but it's just, you know, working hard and just looking at opportunities. Oh, can I do that? Can I do that? Is that available to me? Let me see if I can do it. You know, the one thing I don't like to be told is no. Why? Exactly. Do it. You know, and, and, you know, and also that's, you know, that's from an era when we grew up is that we had that American exec- exceptionalism, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. you, you, and, and for you and I, it was represented in machinery because we saw these, mm-hmm. this machinery and well, we, you know, we could put a man on the moon. You know what I'm saying? We were alive when they put the exactly. man on the moon. We, you know, we, we saw all of, you know, we saw all of this happening and there was nothing. Yes. It wasn't handed to you. It was nothing that you couldn't, it was nothing that really couldn't be done if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Well, did they, people roll out the red carpet for us? Of course not. They didn't. We had our obstacles. Yeah. We had our pitfalls, but we, we, we had that vision and we had that passion. And you, and I have to honestly say that, you know that your vision and your passion what made you the person really was was tempered under the hood of a 71 plymouth you're saying so well you taught me i mean i remember even to this day if i take out a bolt out of a out of a out of wherever i take the bolt goes back in the same hole back in the same hole even the lugs yeah even the i take the lugs off my car that lug comes off that stud. That's because I make a diagram. Right, go back that stud, that lug. I mean, it's just maybe it's a little obsessive, but you know what? That's how I learned. That's how Sergeant Hansen taught your dad. That's how your dad and taught you us. taught me. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what I do. You index your spark plugs. I yeah. mean, I, I index my plugs. I, 
I do everything I have to do, you know, to yeah. do it right. You do it once, and you never have to do it again. Yeah, they know, they know it's 100% right. And, you know, we're going to have to get ready to, to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. But a couple of things I, I need to say, and I'm just going to come sure. at you. I'm going to come at you rapid fire. You remember okay. remember when we went, when I had my Skyhawk, we went cross country and, and we saw that, that Ford CL 9000 out in the Nevada desert at night in the rest area. Remember that? That. Mm. You don't remember the CL nine thousand? You're disappointing me in front of the whole audience. Oh. The semi, oh, the semi. Remember with the air ride cab? Okay, okay. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember. You know, you remember you said to me that's not a Ford. They probably rebadged it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember now. I remember the conversation. I didn't know Ford made big tractor trailers. Yeah, the CL nine thousand. That, that thing was gorgeous. I remember it had four hundred fifty gallon fuel saddle tanks on it. Yeah. So so we, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. We went. We we traveled together. We went. Oh, oh, I mean, we could make a travel show about it. But also. Oh, you, you took me on my first trip. I never went anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you took Ohio. We went to Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, and the thing is that, but now, sadly, sadly, your 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 marriage didn't end up working out. Sadly, no. and uh, and you have someone new in your life right now. So yes, and and that was totally. And even though she won't admit it, I think it was an act of God. I met her in February. Her name is Linda. Uh, she worked at TSA. Um, uh, the McCarran Airport, or Las Vegas Airport, has two terminals, Terminal 1, Terminal 3. I don't know why I don't call it Terminal 2, but anyway. So I was, I, and again, I, I just happened to be there because my last job with TSA, I was what they call insider threats. You know, we looked, we checked by the bypass doors, employees. but anyway. So I flowed around the whole airport. I wasn't dedicated to one checkpoint. So I just, happened just to be in that terminal and then i already checked my email in the morning when i got to work or when i arrived and then i said now ah, just for a poop and giggles let me just go and check it again and i just i'm sitting there in this room's training room and she walks in and i knew linda from just seeing her around the airport and um and then she sat down and logged on the computer and, you know, we started talking, and, and I noticed things. I'm, I, I noticed a lot of things. Uh, de- I'm very detailed-oriented. Like, if you come to my house, all the screw heads on the switchplate covers are all lined up. You didn't and notice that, Ruthie coming out of the house, though, back in 1977. I looked at that dark. Okay. I looked at that dark. <laughs> so, anyway, so Linda sits down next to me, and so she's on my right. So I noticed she wasn't wearing a wedding ring anymore. She used to wear just this beautiful little gold band. I always found that very nice, you know, not these big ornate rings that people wear, just a simple gold band. And I said, oh, you're not wearing a wedding ring anymore. She goes, yeah, my husband had passed. And, oh. oh, my God, I couldn't believe that. Yeah. You know, and um, so, and then she said was, you know, I'm just looking for someone to go to the movies with or go out to dinner with. And I wasn't seeing anybody. You know, I really wasn't. I was, you know, the occasional date once a year, you know. I, you know, just got tired of the whole dating thing, you know, just kind of over it. So, and the rest is history. So we're now, we're in August, started seeing each other in February, so... We're, we're enjoying it. We don't call it dating. We just call it a thing. 
And, you know, we're good with it. You know, she's a great gal. And I always tell her, I said, I wish I met her 30 years ago. You know, um, I probably would have had a family with her. You know, she's a great gal, much better than I deserve. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. She puts up with my craziness. I mean, I have you know, like my cars, you know, I'm, I'm a little freaky about stuff, you know, and uh, she understands that, you know, and uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's been really wonderful. Something completely unexpected that, you know, turned out to be a real wonderful thing. You know, and I'm very, very happy. Very well, happy. Well, the thing is that, you know, life, as we say, and like I said, listeners to my show know that that if you look for it in life, you see the hand of God. And mm-hmm. and and as we start to close this show today, we could go on forever, but the stories that we never even got to. But it's been oh, wonderful. It, it's, it's been it's been wonderful to be able to share with my audience, my friend, and my friendship. But you know, if you look at it, when you walked out of the house that day in 1977 to go for your walk, I got on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Glenn happened to walk out of the house. If he didn't walk out of the house, I would have ridden right by his house, never knowing where yeah. he, where he lived, where he lived. And and we have and and that was the, that was the foundation of a of a of a. Uh, a friendship, a bond between us that mm-hmm. that will last until we go home to the Lord. And then, exactly. And, and, uh, like I said, it, it was, it was by faith. It really was. And, you know, and, and, and I believe in God, I believe in the Holy spirit and I believe in, you know, that things don't happen because they, they happen because for a reason, no. my whole life has been that way. From the time I, I was a little kid to the time now, you know, I always say there's always that little fork in the road. You go left, you go right, you know, but somehow someone always guided me to whatever fork I had to go to. And I had a career. I had an incredible career with, with the car business. I made boatloads of money, you know, but more importantly, I learned a lot of things. You know, and it afforded me to have all the toys that I have. And and then, you know, meeting this person and going down here and going down here and doing this, meeting Linda, you know, meeting the friends that I have now here, you know, and it's just, it's like I said, everything has been a blessing in my life. And I know it's because of God. Yeah, Nothing that I did. I'm an idiot. But, you know, but it's all the hand of God that's doing everything for me. You know, and I and I firmly believe in that. And I'm not a church goer. I don't go to church, but I pray every night. I pray for you know my friends, my family. I pray for our country. I pray for whatever I can possibly pray for. And you pray for so my cat Donald to come home. I pray for your cat Donald every single day. You know, and and like right now, I'm involved in in racing, not on a competitive basis, but I do track days. You know, I was able to, you know, one day I woke up and I said, you know, I'm tired of just going to car shows. So I, I, I sold my Trans Am. I had a 78 Trans Am, a Smoking the Bandit. So I traded in my 16 Mustang GT. I bought a 2018 special ordered it, you know, and modified that car for track use. So now I go out to Pahrump with the Porsche Club and I go on the racetrack and, and, you know, it's, it's, again, it's fulfilling dreams. You know, we're only on this earth once. And if you can't fulfill your dreams, you know, 
it's a, it's boring. You, you just got to get out there and try to do something, you know, and, 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 and live your dreams, fulfill your dreams, you know, because someday you won't be able to, you know, because you get old, you get sick or whatever, but fulfill your dreams. Look out, you know, what, what do I want to do? You know, obviously you can't go by a jet plane, but maybe some of you can, but you know, but fulfill whatever you can. Never take no for an answer. Why can't I do this? Let me do it. And you know what? And you'd be surprised, you know, you just, you know, your, your life will be a blessing, an absolute blessing. Yeah. And, you know, and the good thing about growing older is that we could look backwards in the rearview mirror of life instead of looking while we're looking through the windshield and looking through the rearview yeah. mirror. And then until you get that those those bumps in the road and that pathway and 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 you then you 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 can't see the hand of god when you don't have enough miles under your belt because it's right and 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 that's no one can because it's not it's not apparent but then you start to look back and see things but you know gene i want to i want to thank you so much for sharing your story with my audience it's been wonderful to be able to share with my audience a knowledge of the man who was my best friend, the man who was my my brother, the man who's been with me long by my side through my ups and downs in my career. You know, so many people say they go on the radio, they go on social media, they want you to think to tell that they have this this wonderful, charmed life. Well, you and I had no charmed life. We had life. Nah. We we had life. Nah. We, we had we our made te- it ourselves. We had our tears. We had our heartaches. We had our, our disappointments, but all of those things the friendship that that was that was the hand of god as as it was yeah has lasted I've seen all your shops you know going from all your precise automotive i still have your precise automotive sticker on my firebird yeah well you should have and i still have your jacket hanging up in my garage that's why that's why it runs good but listen, I want to. Yeah, it runs good. You yeah, know? I, I, I want to thank you so so much, and I want to thank the audience for listening to this story, and I want you to know that, uh, like I said once again, is that the purpose of these shows is to is for to represent people with passion, whether it's pa- Gene's passions happen to be cars, but he's passionate about other things. Some of the guests we have are passionate about farming, some are passionate about both. But regardless of what your passion is, the key is to have passion for it and to also realize that that you need to aspire to do something with your life no matter what no matter what the age is so so buddy i'm going to ask you to stay stay on the line but we're going to have to say goodbye to the audience and where when where will we next time we'll be on the road to someone just as passionate and just as wonderful as gene so you have a blessed day thank Thank you you so much for listening 